Amen. Thank you, choir. That's for you, so don't forget. Wow. Fill the earth with music. Lift, lift high the cross of Christ so the world may see. It's kind of why we're here, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yes, that's why we're here. We are called to be light in a dark world. We're called to say there is a leader worth following. Is there anything special going on today in Hong Kong? Oh, oh, you mean we're electing somebody today, sort of, maybe, depending on how you look at things. We're electing a new chief executive. In I'm an American, so in my world, it's kind of like a president of our area. And this is a big deal for many reasons. One, we're looking for a, a leader that above all would exalt Christ as Lord. Two, we're asking for a leader that would give us good working, working relationships with our neighbors and with one another. And so before we take another step today, we're going to pray that these elections would bring glory to God, our Father who is in heaven. I can't speak to who's the right candidate or those things. I have my opinions and I'm not going to share them here. Uh, But what we can do is we can pray and we can trust that God is sovereign and he can use the most broken of leaders to bring glory to himself and to show the world there's a better way. So let's pray for the election. Lord, It's a big day in Hong Kong. Whenever there's a change in leadership, especially with so much at stake right now, this, our 20th anniversary of being a special administrative region, Lord, we just commit this election into your hands, asking that as the votes are tallied, people would vote according to your will, according to what is right, according to the great truth that we know is found in Jesus Christ. I pray for whomever our new leader might be, that you would anoint them with your wisdom and that they would walk in it. We know there will be much criticism no matter what they do and what they say, but we we ask that he or she may find their strength and their hope and their trust in you and you alone. And Lord, we pray for the church that whether we're happy with the decision or not, that we would be at the front lines praying And that we would be at the front line seeking to affect change where you give us opportunity. Again, though, pointing people back to your son, not just to politics. Lord, you are good. And your faithful, hesed love endures forever. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our series, Why Easter? And we're going to look at the fact that Jesus Christ not only came... Uh, to die and so that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. But he came to show us that a human can live a better life, that there is a better way to live when we walk this earth. Most of us, when we ask, why did Jesus have to die and be risen again? We're always good with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But we forget the monumental impact he had in just three short years while he walked the earth. We forget to consider the legacy that he's left us. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read a few verses here. We're going to start right at the very beginning. 
And this is, to me, one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture, and I can't touch on all of it today, which is why you now have discussion guides in your bulletins. If you turn over your message notes, you'll notice there's lots of questions to help you go deeper and to think more and to apply this more to your lives. So don't stop here and don't stop with just what we cover in the next few moments. Go deeper in your community groups. Go deeper in maybe your prayer fellowship at work, around your dinner table with your family, and start here. Because when Paul says, therefore, he means, listen up, this is important. And he says it a lot in this passage. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. In your relationships with one another, think like Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be... See, I've memorized the old version. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or if you've got the old NIV, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, see, he keeps saying it. He must think these things are important. My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, continue to live out your faith with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And then this part gets really personal. You ready for it? It's big. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. In the old versions, it says, do everything without complaining. I don't like that. You see what I did there? Really smart. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Lord, your word is so rich and so good and so needed today. May we live in it as we follow you wherever you might guide us. In your name we pray, amen. I want to ask a question as we get started in this idea of who needs a king. In the world we find ourselves, how might we define, and this is audience participation for a moment, so I'd like to hear from you if you're willing to speak out, what defines or what makes a good leader 
based on what we see in the world today. Any ideas? We've had lots of elections and changes in leadership at the governmental level across the world. And so we get a picture that people are electing officials with a certain personality trait in certain areas. But what, what do you think? What makes a good leader? Represent the interests of the people. Excellent. Good. What's the world telling us makes a good leader? Nobody's willing to speak? Well, based on some elections we've seen lately, we seem to be electing people in certain countries, my home country being one of them, that have a strong personality, that are unafraid to speak their minds. We have in our neighbors to the north a nation that has elected a leader that says, I'm so trustworthy, all the power sits centrally with me. And that's a big thing. So power is, is related there. We think uh, even in this room, many of you are successful and strong leaders. And the ones in this room that I know of, uh, we've got some church planters here. We've got alpha leadership here. We've got so many great leaders in the classroom uh, and in the educational sector and in the business world. And almost all of you that I've met and had conversations with have told me about the need more than ever for integrity, more than ever for character. David Brooks, uh, a favorite New York Times columnist of mine, wrote the book, uh, the, uh, I think last year it came out, The Road to Character, on saying there's a need for us to act and lead and serve differently. Which brings us back to the question and with, which with, with which we start today. Why on earth do Christians say we need a king or a lord or a leader? Because remember, last week we reviewed and we reminded ourselves that all have sinned, right? You remember that? For all have sinned and fallen short of the great glory of God. And so because everybody has sinned, we tend toward a couple of attitudes. For instance, we tend to be selfish. We tend to think of ourselves before we think of other people. We also tend toward discontent. I want more. I want, I want, I want. Me, me, me. This isn't good enough. This couldn't be worse. And we get these negative attitudes. For instance, right now, if you happen to be slightly obsessive about technical things, you'll notice these two screens don't look anything alike. And it is driving me nuts. I am discontent. Even though this one's finally bright, now we're missing a color. And this one seems to be darker. We cannot win. Is that a big deal? No. But in my head, it's huge. I can't stop looking at it. We tend toward discontentedness. Why? Because all have sinned. Because all continually choose ourselves over what's truly important. Is the quality of our screens the most important thing in the world this morning? Absolutely not. The message of truth that we find in scriptures is. And we can find that any number of ways. But because all have sinned, we've exchanged the truth of God, the fulfilled, selfless life hidden in Jesus Christ, we're told in the scriptures. And we've exchanged that for a lie that says it's all about me, that if it doesn't feel good or it doesn't fit my definition of truth, it doesn't have to be true for me. Therefore, I can do what I want. 
and it's led us to be living in a world that seems to be operating like a ship without a rudder that we never quite know where it's going to go. It goes this way for one week and then it goes this way for another. You ever felt that way in life? I was speaking with someone earlier this week and they were wrestling with some things in a great way. They were seeking the Lord, but the Lord hadn't seen fit yet to share with them what's coming next. Actually, I've had this conversation a few times and this was with a pastor friend and they said, you know what? We keep trying to tell everybody where to go, yet God hasn't told us, so maybe we should just wait on him. And I thought, how true. But see, that doesn't fit within our expectations. We tend to tell God what we want him to do, don't we? Isn't that easier? I I think it's easier to tell God what we need him to do because we're in charge and we know what's best, right? My favorite author, uh, Sky Jatani, says it this way, like the crowds in Jerusalem, if we needed a king, so did Jerusalem. And Jesus comes ushering in in just a couple weeks on Palm Sunday. And Sky is referring to that passage in Luke. And he says, like the crowds in Jerusalem, we, ex- we assume that God exists to meet our expectations and grant our desires. And when he doesn't, we conclude that he's either a fraud or a liar. Or at the very least, if he doesn't answer our prayers according to our plans and according to our agenda, we say that we don't need him or we're not going to listen to him right now. So we call ourselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus, except when it's inconvenient. So the question ultimately becomes, who needs a king? Well, if I tend to make decisions that aren't helpful to society around me, I do. I need, to show, I need someone to show me there's a better way to live. Because if this is all there is, it's kind of discouraging. But it's not. And so the question then becomes, what kind of leader might we be looking for in a world that we find ourselves in today? And Philippians 2 gives us great examples. And you can see these notes. You can see them on our multicolored screens. It's great. We need someone who is royal. And that is not the Queen of England. She's been a great leader, I think. I'm not up on my history other than the Netflix show, The Crown. Um, but beyond that, what I, the kind of leader that's royalty that I'm talking about is one who came from heaven, came down to earth as a man, and made his dwelling among us. And as Philippians 2 teaches us, chose not to exercise all of his godness. He didn't cease becoming God. And we can talk about that till we're very, very tired. But the baseline is that Jesus wasn't less God while he was here on earth. He just chose not to exercise all of his power and glory because he was showing the world what humanity could be, how we should live, and that there is indeed a better way. He is the one who's royal. He's God's only begotten son. He comes from the Father, and he walked this earth miraculously. That someday every knee would bow and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Christ is Lord, bringing glory to God our Father who is in heaven. So not only do we see that he is of royal descent, what's amazing, and what Pastor Stan and I were talking about, is if you go to this inspired exhibit, which I recommend all of you go to, it's here too, I believe, just about Palm Sunday or after that, I can't remember. You could check. But anyway, 
But one of the things you'll notice is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, how many of them are dated long before Jesus ever walked, that give us these prophecies long before Jesus ever could have faked it. 400, 600, 800 years before Jesus does anything or shows up on earth, the prophets are already telling about him, saying he's the king you need. He's the king that's coming. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 52, Jeremiah, the Psalms all refer to the glory of God and the Messiah that would be our Lord and king, the kind of king we need. But here's the funny thing. Not much different than today, when the Hebrew people read what the Messiah in their minds was going to do, their expectations of a king was one that was going to wipe out all their oppressors, one that was going to wipe out all the other government leaders and do it their way. And it was almost thinking militarily. And yet Jesus comes in a vastly different way. Jesus, the one most qualified to save, comes in a bit different way, better than we can ever be. You see, if he's qualified to save, if he truly is the Messiah, it means he's lived a life without sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. And what that's telling us is that when Jesus walked the earth, fully man, he did not sin. He wasn't, he was every bit as much tempted as we are, but he didn't give in to it. You know, frustrations, I'm sure, mounted. Jesus time and again says, oh, you of little faith. He confronts the Pharisees and their hypocritical practices time and again. He says these things over and over and over again. Yet in his frustration, in his anger, he does not sin. He points people back to the truth. There's a difference. He's so qualified to lead because in the pressure cooker of life, he would continue to point people back to the better way back to the glory of God seen through Jesus Christ as he walked the earth. He showed people a righteousness that could be had through him. Not only that, but if we think about it, leaders have let us down. Whether it's a church leader, there's a good chance that I've disappointed you at one time or another. And for that, I'm sorry. There's a good chance that leaders you've relied on at work or in the school or in any number of circumstances, there's leaders that have let you down. And yet in Jesus Christ, we've got this leader we can trust. We've got one who promises us he will never leave us nor forsake us. His ways are higher than our ways and we can walk in them. And he is for us and he will not forsake us. He's not going to forget us. There's times when we disagree with how he does things, but that doesn't mean he's not acting in our best interests. It means the exact opposite, that our interests aren't our best interests, that his ways are better for us, and we can walk in them, and we're invited to trust him because he'll never leave us. He'll never betray us. Not only that, We need somebody to guide us. If our world is becoming more and more pluralistic, where more and more things are considered right, we need to know there's a right way to go. And what we've often seen is we've got this light up here, right? And we look up at the light, and it looks pretty, but it doesn't work. Why not? 
So many of you are starting to get it. This makes a huge difference. It's not connected. It can't give anyone light because it's not connected. And yet we kind of treat Jesus like that. We leave him up there and we come on Sundays and want to feel connected to him. But then when we go about our daily lives on the weekdays, we leave him up there and hope that the wall socket might be plug-inable when we need it. But see, the amazing thing about Jesus is he didn't say, come up to me and come up to my light. He did way better. He came down to us and he said, I'll make a way for you to be connected to the greatest power source and the greatest light in all of mankind has ever seen. And I am that light. And of course, it doesn't work. Oh, it does work. Yay, it works. Whew. Illustration's gone bad 101. Check the light bulb. But see, here's the thing. Jesus, fully God, took on human flesh, showed us there's a right way to live in a world that's giving you all these other examples. And then he says not only that, but as you read John and 1 John, 2 John and 3 John, you get this picture that Jesus is the picture of light, life, and love. And so in him, in the word, there is light that will show us which way to go. And that's right down the middle. And he says, you can know me for all eternity. I'm inviting you in and I'm inviting you to know I will guide you and direct every step of your life. Not on your terms, but on the terms that are best for you by bringing glory to my Father who is in heaven. I will light your path. But there's times when we get cocky. There's times when we get a little arrogant and we decide to walk on our own. Years ago, I would go running at night in the mountains, and I've already told you my falling down story, so you don't need to hear that one again. Uh, You'd think I'd learn, but long before that one happened, I was going on a trail that I know very well because it's what we call my loop. And I'd gotten out, and it was just starting to get dark, so I hadn't turned my headlamp on. And I start running. And all of a sudden, boom! And I ran into something. And it was right there. But I couldn't see it because it had gotten just dark enough that I couldn't see the darkness that was right in front of me. And then I heard, I ran into the side of a cow. (laughs) Why did I run into the side of a cow? Because I didn't turn my light on to see what was right in front of me. How many of us get ourselves in a position where we run into a brick wall and then say, God, why didn't you help me? And he says, I was always right here. You didn't seek me first. You've only sought me now that you're in a pickle or you've run into a cow. How many of us are running into cows in our own life? By the way, I've only done that one once. And Jesus, the other thing we need to know about this leader, the most qualified of all history to follow and to lead us, is that he toils us time and again throughout Scripture that he came to give us a better life by making our lives all about him and the glory of God. How do I know that? John 3, 16, uh, you know that well. Whoever believes in him would have what? Temporary life? Life for just right now? 
forever life, forever glory, forever eternal, forever enjoying the glory in the presence of God and his son who sits at his mighty right hand, we get to enjoy life forever. And it's going to be a party. Amen. See, this is what I mean. We forget the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Following him, and woe is me, it's so hard. Following him is, yes, this is the greatest way of all to live. And it's forever. And nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Not only that, but Jesus himself says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. John 10.10. Remember that light and life. I am the light to show you a life that is forever and that is great right now and for all eternity. He's not promising if you follow him every day, you'll be wealthy beyond imagination in the physical sense. He's promising us that if we follow him, we will never have to doubt that his ways are best and that we are living with a great purpose and that we have no regrets and that there is great meaning in the lives we've lived. Far greater than just big bank accounts or big homes or happy families. There's meaning and there's foundation and there's hope. And as one writer said, there's significance. We're important. For you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the very image of God. And he says, I came, I made you to have full lives. And that can only be done by following the leader. Did you ever play that game as a kid? Follow the leader? Well, that's what we're called to do with Jesus, except we're not called to do it blindly. He says, I'll show you right where to go. And I've given you my word and I've given you the Holy Spirit to open up my word in miraculous ways and to guide you, to counsel you, and to teach you. Make time for me and learn from me. And you will never, never be forgotten. Not only that, but his life shows that he modeled a certain way to live. Just think about this for the second. The fullness of God in flesh. So all of God in one man comes to live the earth. If you've seen the famous movie Bruce Almighty, Bruce is basically charged with overseeing a very small area of one city. And he abuses his power that has just massive consequences. He moves the moon and it changes the levels of the sea. He does all these things for his own benefit, some of it with great hilarity ensuing. But he learns that there's a lot going on. And Bruce doesn't until the very end realize that life isn't about him when he's been given this great power. Jesus never did that. Jesus never once sought to bring glory to himself by abusing his power. In fact, when he was tempted by Satan three times, all three times, he says, no, 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 this is not about me. It's, obeying, it's about obeying my Father who is in heaven and bring glory to his name and trusting that his ways are best. Jesus came to model a different way to live where some of our leaders around the world are telling us to fight for ours and to do what's, what we want. Jesus is modeling the life of a servant. Great examples of that. No one would have sat down at a well and talked to a Samaritan woman if they had Hebrew blood in them. Jesus not only sat down and talked to her, 
but he listened, he counseled, and he cared. Jesus washed the feet of fishermen, of dirty tax collectors, of all sorts of other ethnic, ethnically diverse types of people. And he did it out of love. And he did it out of humility. And then, for the joy set before him, we're told later on, he went to the cross in obedience to his Father who is in heaven so that that life we've been talking about and we've been promised, we might have for all eternity because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins like we talked about last week. He didn't seek his own glory. He constantly pointed back to the glory of God, his Father who is in heaven. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll follow me, he would tell his disciples time and again. He demonstrates a selfless, better way to walk this earth because in him we have hope. It's so easy to get pessimistic. We look around the world and we're frustrated by this or we're angry at that or we're, our circumstances are too, too depressing and so we'll just start complaining. And on our own, we become very selfish, bitter, and discontent. Yet Jesus teaches us, be selfless. Don't worry about these things. Worry about the glory of God. And let your attention fall to me. And he even reminds his people, come on, come to me if you're weary. Don't worry about complaining. Come to me and find rest in me. Tim Keller adds, he says, if Jesus is God, and we're affirming that he is, a lot of you have to start to get more optimistic about your own future. Let me say that again. If Jesus is God, a lot of you have to start getting more optimistic about your own future. Because in Christ Jesus, you have life and are invited to full life for all eternity. But you don't live like it. Every day is a series of complaints and frustrations. It doesn't demonstrate any joy that we have in Jesus. And you know what? I'm guilty of that myself from time to time. If this is Jesus Christ who's come into your life and says, I love you and I'll never forsake you, and he's committed to you, why are we so pessimistic about changing how we live? To follow him. Because it's scary to let go of ourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously says, uh, a follower of Jesus, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus is a call to come and die. To say, my agenda dies. My sinful self is dead. That's the heart of baptism, which we're going to do in a couple weeks, and I can't wait. Because we're dead to sin and alive in Christ, and the disciple says, I'm going to put behind me the old ways, and I'm going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in his great power, following the very kingship of Jesus Christ. And how do we follow his kingship? How do we follow his authority over our lives? It's so simple. And I just gave you a really small list because we could go on and on and on. But I thought this to-do list in today's culture is a pretty good one. And it starts with what we see uh, both at the beginning and the end of Paul's hymn writing here in Philippians chapter 2. Because first, in the first few verses, what's he talk about? Your attitude. Your attitude. How's your attitude this morning? Because he's talking to the church. He's writing from prison, by the way. He writes his most joyful letter from prison. 
Don't lose the irony that we find there. He's strapped to a wall in prison and he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We're frustrated by the weather. Maybe, I don't know. It's kind of gloomy out there, right? And so we're told that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In how we think of each other, we should do it as servants with humility. And oh, by the way, when he gets to the end of this soliloquy, he says, do it without complaining or grumbling. That's a radical shift in how many of us in this city choose to operate. We are a city. Now, you guys are all different. None of this is a struggle for you. But outside these doors, we might find a city that tends to react very negatively to whatever goes on, no matter what it is. If there's been one case of swine flu, we shut the city down. Now, that's being safe. Don't get me wrong. But there's, there's a balance to it. We get very negative over very small things from time to time. Or inside the church, we worry more about this than about the glory of God, and we miss the fact that that person we're sitting next to right now could really use a humble servant loving them and asking them from the bottom of their heart, how are you doing? And what can I do to walk with you? Jesus and the Samaritan woman, I think it started with the unwritten, how are you doing? And Jesus changed that woman's life that later changed a village. And it's amazing. But it starts with our attitude. If we're so focused on everything that is perceived as being wrong in our lives, we can't look past with confidence to see the glory of God at work all around us. In two weeks, let me give you some numbers. In two weeks, we have seen over 10 people connected with Alliance International Church accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Yeah. Wow. Not only that, but... In two weeks' time, we've seen almost every single one of them that comes and calls this their new church home because they just accepted Jesus. They've already started a new believers course and growing as disciples, and that's amazing. We've seen work going on with our youth that are being renewed in their spirits, saying there's a better way to live, and it's time I follow that. We're seeing that. We've got so far at least eight people, no, 11 people, I believe, right now that want to be baptized that are going through our classes on Saturday and on Sunday. And it seems like there's more that I'm missing out. God is at work. But if we are so focused on, I don't like Mike's tie, or this carpet color doesn't match this, or whatever we get focused, I'm using little things so you get the idea. We miss the very glory of God that says, I put you here to show my glory to a broken world. Do everything without complaining or grumbling because I want you to be useful. Don't we want to feel significant? How do we do that? Well, the church has been given the wonderful opportunity of caring for the poor, the needy, and the least of these. AIC gets to partner with groups like ICM in Jordan, not the country, uh, but in Jordan, our district right over here, and Doug and others lead wonderful teams with them to serve the the least of these. But what more could we do? How can we continue to help? We've been given a charge. $10 million to raise is a lot of money, but not to God. 
If we could raise 10 million for that eye hospital in Congo, it turns into 20 million. I'm not good at math, but I know that's double. And that's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to affect over 6,000 lives a year with sight. Put that in perspective. Years ago, one man said yes, that he would seek and he would trust the Lord to plant churches all over Hong Kong. He didn't have a great backing. He just knew he was supposed to do it. 120 some or 130 some churches later, those, that work still continues. And he comes home to Hong Kong every once in a while to visit and see what God is doing. He continues to work. But if we get caught up in grumbling and saying it's not fair, we lose sight. We care for the needy. We care for the spiritually struggling. We care for the weak. We don't run away from them. We run to them because that's what Jesus did for us when he brought his light down to earth. He ran to us. Not only that, but in a days where refugees are wondering, where do I find a home? The church should be their first destination. And I know there's a lot of politics that go into where refugees can go and all of those things, and there's lots of fear and everything. But biblically speaking, what we see is a world that needs hope and a whole lot of displaced people that had no say in the matter, that needs someone and some people to be the light of Christ in their lives and to say, we'll give you a home somehow. Or the widow or the orphan. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says true religion is this, that you care for the widows and orphan and you're not polluted by the ways of this world. Just because the world says it's true doesn't mean we have to walk in it. We're supposed to show them there's a better way. There's widows, there's orphans among us. And we can show them a better way. And finally, in the days where people seem to grab power for themselves, Jesus showed us that we can live with integrity, that we can live with honor, and that we can live with spirit-given wisdom. We may not have all the answers. We're not told to. He does. But we're invited to show the world that we will rest in the leading of God and that we will not act outside of his will and that if anybody dares ask us to go away that's outside the direction of God, we just won't go. And they might mock us, But is that such a bad thing? Is it such a bad thing to be seen as different in a day when the world is crying out for someone to be a true example? Jesus is that example. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And if we love him, we will obey his commands. His commands started with, follow me, That was great, right? First, come on, come to me. And we like that part. Come on, come to Jesus. It's going to be better in Jesus. But we forget that he didn't stop there. He said, and I will make you fishers of men. I'll go make you disciple makers. I'll go make you useful. I'll go put you to work. Ladies and gentlemen, today, I invite you to follow a leader that invites you to get to work. A leader that calls you to have a good attitude Because for the joy set before him, he went to the cross on our behalf so that we could live useful, full lives for the glory of God, so that we could know the work we do anywhere we do it brings honor to him because our hearts are all his. As we sang glory, glory, hallelujah, 
All that glory is to be aimed at God. Every ounce of our lives is to be aimed at following the model Jesus has set for us to live. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek are those that with strength under control. May our strength be on full display as we depend on God to guide us and to direct us and to use us to change our city and our world according to his great pleasure. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you gave us the greatest leader of humanity has ever seen. Thank you that you are worthy to be followed every day of your life, every day of our lives. And Lord, help us to set aside all that might distract us from following you. In your name we pray, amen.